Welcome to Light for the Journey, a podcast of Russell Memorial United Methodist Church. Each week, we open the scriptures in faith that the timeless truth of God will guide us as we seek to follow in the steps of Jesus. The classic Christmas carol, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, reminds us that Christmas brings tidings of comfort and joy. When you think about comfort at Christmas, you may think of soft, warm sweaters or curling up next to the fire with a nice cup of cocoa and your loved ones nearby. In this week's message from the second Sunday of Advent, Pastor David Cartwright explores what comfort Jesus brings the believer and how we should carry that comfort with us the whole year through. As we go to our message today, let's open our hearts and minds to the truth that God would speak to us. I invite you to turn in your scripture this morning to Isaiah chapter 40. I think rather than reading through the text first, we'll just kind of work our way through it. If you didn't bring your Bible with you this morning, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. So I'll invite you to open it up to Isaiah chapter 40. Um, If you don't know where to find Isaiah, Start in the Psalms. If you open your Bible right in the middle, it should fall open to the Psalms and then just work toward the back a little ways until you come to the prophets. Isaiah will be the first one you find. Isaiah 40, we'll be working with verses 1 through 11 and some other scriptures as well. So as we prepare to go to the the word of the Lord, let us pray together. Gracious Father, in in these moments, may our hearts and our minds be open and still before you. We thank you for the truth and the power of your word. And I pray by the presence of your Holy Spirit that your word would be made alive for us today. Grant to me your grace that I would speak words of your truth in simplicity with grace that you would accomplish in our midst your good and perfect will. For all good things that we receive and experience now, we give only to you the praise and the glory. In the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. As we come into this Advent season, and you may be tired of kind of hearing these kinds of things by now, but it's been such an unusual and difficult year that it seemed to me that we really could use the very kinds of concepts that are central to the Advent season. Hope, and peace, and joy, and love. Could you use some of that? I kind of thought that might be the case. And so I, I just, I'm kind of approaching these few weeks with the, uh, under the heading of, tis the season. It is the season for hope. We began with that last week, that word of hope that Scripture gives us, reminding us of the name, one of the many names that Jesus uh, held, Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And if God is with us, we can have hope that God is still working in our midst. The word today is, is peace, that God brings to us a, a peace. And 
you know, when we think about peace, uh, very often we kind of reduce it to very simply the absence of conflict. But for the Hebrew, for the Israelite, there's that very rich concept of shalom when that doesn't only convey just the absence of, of conflict, but, but a wholeness when, when all things are, are right, when everything would be as, as God would design it if God were putting all of the pieces together. And so what God offers to us is, is a piece of knowing that something is, is made completely right. And what God offers to us is that shalom that he offers through the presence of his Messiah, through Christ. And it's in giving Christ that he truly offers to us peace. And yes, we would love today to know a peace that invades every part of our being in society and in our culture. Peace with our neighbor, peace with uh, all other people, peace with all nations. And if you've looked at the headlines recently, you know we're not there yet. And the likelihood of it happening tomorrow isn't all that great either. But that doesn't mean that we have to live without peace, because peace begins with the relationship we have with God. That's where peace starts, and that peace will start there and then start to invade everything else around us. Isaiah, the prophet, through the first 39 chapters of, of the book, has been pointing the people of the southern kingdom of Judah toward a time of judgment. And yes, they had gone astray, they had walked away from the Lord, they had worshipped false gods. Uh, the prophet would, would, was telling them that this time of judgment would come upon them. But when, when the writing comes to chapter 40, there's this stark change in tone. And it begins with a word of comfort. The, the first 11 verses of Isaiah have been called the prologue to the rest of this prophetic work. And there is a sense in which that is true, that in these 11 verses, you get a very small snapshot of what the rest of the chapters are going to bring. And yes, there's even those words of judgment, those who walk away from the Lord, those who do not walk in His ways, that, that, that uh, judgment and alienation from God is still there. But the word is hope, the word is, is reconciliation, the word is restoration for the people of God. God has not walked away from them, God looks to them to, to say, there's going to be a time in which you will be restored. And that's where the prophet starts in, in chapter 40 when he says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God, speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Comfort, O oh comfort, my people, says your God. I have a habit of which I have been made more aware. I went for years in my life without really recognizing that I tend to do this particular thing. But those who are especially close to me, who spend much time around me, like my spouse and my children, my administrative assistant in the office, and others who tend to be around me quite a bit, have told me that from time to time I 
sigh. That out of the quietness of my presence, all of a sudden there will come a deep And it's true. I do that. Now that they've told me, I'm more aware that I do this. You probably do it also. There's a pretty good chance. And I realize that it comes out of, uh, you know, that, that I allow my mind to get wrapped up in what I'm working on, what I'm thinking about. Maybe it's something that's bothering me, a, a weight that's on my mind. And I guess that what, what that does to my body is maybe I'm not breathing normally. I'm, I'm holding my breath. I'm not taking in enough oxygen. My body starts to get tensed up. And then there's that moment of kind of letting it go. Release. Maybe the job is finished. It's that, it's that sigh that is conveyed in the Hebrew word that we translate here as comfort. The, the Hebrew language is very rich in imagery often, and so it takes that notion of a, a, a deep breath and then adds this very rich and diverse meaning to it. Now, the meaning can be, it can have a positive connotation, it can have a negative connotation. In this case, it's very positive, but what it conveys is if you will, one who, one who reacts out of compassion for the state of another. Think, if you would, about a parent's or maybe a grandparent's reaction to a child that is hurting or worried or frightened. And, and, we, and we see that and we go, oh my goodness, and we, and we reach out and what do we want to do? We want to take that child in our arms and we want to comfort them and we want to bring that child, you know, to get the sorrow out, to get the pain out, to let that child come to a point in which they will find the release themselves. And this is the message that God, through the prophet, is saying to his people. He's looking forward, understanding that they will go through a time of judgment, but also looking even past that, saying there's going to be a time in which God says, I want to speak comfort to you. I want you to have that time of being able to say, the stress, the, the payment for our iniquities has been more than paid. And things are now made right. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is removed, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all our sins. The prophet points forward. And, and, and understand that even in the prophetic language, there is that time for the nation of Israel when that was going to come true. But there's also a deeper level of speaking to all of creation when God would send his Messiah to say to us, the payment is removed, speak comfortably to the people. God is going to redeem the prophet moves on. Uh, read with me verses 3 through uh, 5, the first part of verse 5. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain 
and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. The glory of the Lord. And, and again, there's that imagery that the prophet likes to use of clearing in the wilderness a way for God. When God shows up, God's glory is going to be revealed. Yes, once again, you could look back into the history of Israel at that time of restoration when he would bring them back from captivity, that Jerusalem and Judah would be rebuilt, which would have been hard for them to imagine at some time. But think then also to that deeper level when God says, I'm going to reveal my glory so that all flesh will see it together. Do you know when the glory of the Lord shone the most brightly? And, and I mean, we could kind of debate about like at the certain times, particularly in history. But God's glory was revealed at no greater time through in no greater way than in the person of Jesus Christ. When God sent that Son into the world, God was saying, I'm revealing my glory to humanity, and all flesh would see it. Even that is embodied in the Christmas narrative. Luke tells us about these lowly Israelite shepherds that, who come and, and, they, and they see the Christ child. Matthew tells us about these stately magi, these Gentiles who come from a far-off land. They too see the Christ child. Even in the Christmas narrative, there is that, that truth that all flesh would come and see the glory of God in that small child. John, as a gospel writer, doesn't tell us anything about the birth narrative, but he too conveys that truth to us when he begins his writing by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in chapter 1, verse 14 says, and the Word became flesh, and what? Dwelt among us, and we beheld his what? Glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace. And truth. John understood that in that child, in that person of Jesus Christ, the glory of God was being revealed to all humanity. The prophet looks forward to the day when all flesh will see the glory of God manifest. And the prophet wants to look forward and convey this to the people so that they will have confidence that it will happen. Now, trust can be a difficult thing. We are able to trust more when we are convinced of the reliability of the one who is talking to us, the one who is speaking to us. The prophet ends, verse 5, with this statement, For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Parents, how many times have you ever said to your child, because I said so? No one else in here other than me. My children have heard it, just because I said so, right? Because we expect that with the word of our mouth there is authority. Well, think about that from the mouth of God. When God says, because I said so, He's not necessarily talking to us as if we are rebellious children, even though we are. But the prophet is saying, look, 
If you want to believe that what I'm telling you will come true, you need nothing more than the fact that God has said it. God has spoken it. It will be. What follows after that is, is a way of kind of reaffirming that. Verse 6 says, a voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And you see that in, in verse 5 where it says, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse 8 says, but the word of our God stands forever. Those two things are like bookends to frame everything that came in between us. What, what, what's the statement? Because God has said so. And because God has said so, it will come to pass. If you're taking notes, write in, your, in the margin, uh, Isaiah chapter 48, beginning at verse 1. Just go and read this later. It's another place in the prophetic work when God says to the people, look, I'm telling you in advance these things are going to happen so that when they happen, you will know that I'm the one who did it. You won't think that it's your, your idol. You won't think that it's your false god. You won't think that it's this or that. You'll know that it was me because I'm telling you in advance that it happened. Trust. Trust. Trust is difficult because it calls us to act with conviction about things that we have not seen yet. Okay? This is why we call it faith. Faith looks forward to what we have not seen. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's why faith and trust are the two things that go hand in hand. Trust can be difficult because it asks us to have conviction about what we can't see yet. If I were to say to you, you need to have a deep level of trust that the sun came up this morning, you would probably think that there's a little something wrong with my reasoning, wouldn't you? You can say, yes, it's okay. Why would you think there's something wrong with my reasoning? You'd say, well, I don't have to trust that the sun will come up this morning. It's already up. I can see that it's up. I don't have to have trust for that. If I were to say to you, now you need to have a great level of trust that the sun will come up tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning, then at least the statement is logical, okay? You haven't seen the sun come up tomorrow morning. You might still have a great level of confidence about it because you've seen God do it day after day and week after week and year after year, but you still look into the future. Now, if I were to say to you, it's going to snow on Christmas Day this year. You might say, hmm, well, in East Texas? Is it possible? Sure, it's possible. Is it likely? Uh, you know, I don't know where you fall upon the spectrum of thinking that's likely or not. Now, I am not saying to you, I'm not giving you a prophetic word that it's going to snow on Christmas Day. I'm just, this is just a what if. But if a prophet showed up and said, God told us, God told me, it's going to snow on Christmas Day, 
And I know that might sound like a stretch. But if the prophetic word comes and says, because God said so, it would call us to have a conviction about something that is going to happen, which can be difficult because we haven't seen it yet. But the prophet is calling his people to say, look, you may not see it yet, but there is a redemption that is coming. God is going to make right what is wrong, and you can take it to the bank because God said so. And I want you to see ultimately where this goes. Because when God talks about the redemption that he brings to all creation, it is not partial. It goes all the way to an end, to a fullness. Turn, if you would, in, in Isaiah to chapter 65. There's a little passage that I want us to read here. And I promise you it is going to sound pretty familiar. In Isaiah chapter 65, beginning at verse 17. The prophet says here, For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Now you may read that and think, where have I heard that before? If you have a study Bible with cross-references, the odds are you can look at the cross-reference for that verse and it will point you to Revelation chapter 21. It should. We have read those words time after time. In the book of Revelation, when God brings us to the end, to that fulfillment, what do you hear? The creation of a new heaven and a new earth. A paradigm in which God will wipe away every tear from the eye. A paradigm in which all things are made new. It is not a coincidence that Revelation and Isaiah point to exactly the same thing. Listen to, let's go ahead and read what the prophet says. Uh, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit, and they will not plant and another eat. For as the, as, as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people, and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor bear children for calamity. They, for they are the offspring of those who are blessed by the Lord, their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. What a beautiful picture. 
when God says, I'm going to bring this complete restoring to my people. Do you believe it? The prophet wants to instill in the people this utter confidence that because God has said it, God will do it. And this redemption looks forward not only to the nation of Israel, but to all of those who are truly Israel in Christ. Through the Redeemer, through the Christ, God brings this redemption to pass. And then the last three verses of our passage in Isaiah 40. The prophet says, Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up and do not fear. Says, Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Behold, the Lord will come with might, with His arm ruling for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. Like a shepherd, He will tend His flock. In His arm, He will gather the lambs and carry them in His bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Announce to the people that when God is coming, He is going to come to you like a what? Like a shepherd. He is going to come and shepherd His people, and care for them. How many of you, I'm not, a, I'm not going to put you on the spot, you don't have to put your hands up, how many of you could recite at least part of, if not the whole, 23rd Psalm? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You've heard that, right? <clears throat> you better say yes to that. Have you ever thought why that is such a powerful passage in our world? Why so many people find comfort in those words? It's interesting to me because percentage-wise, there really aren't that many people who spend a lot of time working with sheep. Okay? There aren't that many shepherds in the room here right? I mean, you may have been around sheep at some time. Maybe you work with cattle or, you know, you're, you're somewhat passingly familiar with them. But when you look at the, our, our, the people of the world as a whole, you know, those who work consistently with sheep and are familiar with shepherds, especially of that, that, that culture, it's not a, a, a daily experience of ours. So why is it that we find such comfort in, in a psalm that describes God as a shepherd. I think it is because there is something powerful to the thought of being under the watchful care, the watchful protection and, and the compassionate care of one who would lay down his life for you. And you see, that's what a shepherd does. That moves us. That, that's comforting to us. To be able to think that God draws near to us, to walk with us, and to minister us, 
to us like a shepherd cares for sheep. It's so powerful. And people still find comfort with those words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The prophet says he will shepherd his flock and in his arm he will gather the lambs, carry them in his bosom, he will gently lead the nursing ewes. There's, an, there's a part of this that requires a willingness on our part. Let me read from Matthew chapter 23. Turn there if, if you would. I, I just want you to see these words over to the New Testament, first book of the New Testament, Matthew 23, beginning at verse um, 37. Now this is toward the end of Jesus' ministry. Uh, he knows that the cross is going to be coming soon. Uh, there's this great resistance that's been up against Jesus. But it's in this passage that Jesus uses a very similar kind of imagery. And I want you to see it. Uh, this is a lament of his over Jerusalem. Matthew 23, verses 7, 37 and 38. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. You were not willing. I wanted to gather you. I wanted to bring you to me and bring you to God so that you could experience the very same thing that the, the shepherd imagery gives, that, that protective presence of Almighty God. Jesus says, I want to bring you near. I'm trying to draw you in so that you can experience that from God, but you would not allow it. And you see what he says in the next verse? Behold, your house is left to you desolate. That doesn't sound pleasant. You weren't willing, and so your house gets left to you desolate. We so deeply desire the peace that comes out of a relationship, a vital, living, deep relationship with God. But it requires a willingness on our part to constantly seek, yearn, draw near to God, to set our mind on Him rather than all the other things that are around us. Think about You remember Peter? Peter, Jesus' disciple? Do you, you remember when he was invited by Jesus to get out of the boat and walk on the water? And he got out and he started walking on the water. And then what happened? He began to sink, didn't he? Do you remember why he began to sink? Because he took his eyes off of Jesus and started looking at all the wind and the waves. 
and he started to go down. And Jesus said, oh, you have little faith. Isaiah 26, verse 3 says, The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts you. The King James Version says, um, uh, let's see, how does that go? Uh, he, let's shoot, it's not, it's not going to come to me. Uh, you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. Him whose mind is stayed on, on God, on you, because he trusts you. How powerful that is for us to keep our focus on God so that we can experience the shalom that he offers to us even now. And you see, that's the invitation I want to extend to you today. Because I know how easy it is to get our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears on everything else that is going on around us. And we will get discouraged, we will get angry, we will get heartbroken, we will get all kinds of things. And in the process of doing that, we will lose our peace. Peace will become greater in our lives the greater we set our mind on God because He is in the process of bringing us to full redemption and in, a, in the midst of a world where everything seems wrong, there is one thing that we can know is right. And that is God's presence in our lives and our relationship with Him through the Redeemer, through the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And I pray during this time of year that you will be able to know the peace that passes all understanding. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for being our peace. Thank you for being a redeeming God. Thank you for sending your Son as the Redeemer. Father, I pray that you would help us as the days pass, that our hearts would burn after you, that our minds would be inclined toward you, that our eyes would be upon the steps of our Savior, that our ears would be in tune to the sound of good news, and so that you would lift our hearts beyond the things of this world and fill us with your peace, now and forever. Amen. We're glad that you chose to spend this time with us in God's Word. You can catch our worship services online at www rmumc.net. May the Lord grant you the light of his truth as you journey through this day.